Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Social Impact Show. I'm Danielle Lovell-Jones, and I'm exploring the multifaceted world of social impact. Interviews, tips, and more for the individual that's interested in doing good in their world. Hey, everyone. It's Danielle with another episode of The Social Impact Show. We are really excited to have Kayleen Hartman on the show today. Say hello, Kayleen. Hello. So Kayleen is my buddy from law school, which is awesome, Um, but even more importantly than that, she is an immigration lawyer with an amazing organization called Ayuda, and I have the pleasure of having lots of cool friends that do a lot of good work. So Kayleen will be one of many people that I get to catch up with, but also get to share more insight about what they do. So let's get into it a little bit, Kayleen. Let's talk about what, what you do with Ayuda, and if you could just start off with what Ayuda does, that would be great. Sure. Yeah. So Ayuda is um, a nonprofit organization that provides direct services to immigrants in the, the D.C. metro area. So that's um, D.C., Columbia, uh, nation's capital, and then the sort of surrounding suburbs in Maryland and Virginia. They are an oldish organization um, in terms of the age of nonprofits. They started back in the 70s. Um, and then a few years ago opened an office out in Falls Church where I work. Um, that's, that's Falls Church, Virginia. Um, the bulk of what they do at Ayuda is immigration legal services. Um, but they also have a couple of other programs. Um, they have a, a family law legal services program. So immigrants who are having issues with family law. Um, can go and, and domestic violence can go there. Um, and then they have a social services program as well. So there's a lot of sort of emphasis on the notion of, um, you know, providing holistic services. So you, you come to us and we sort of figure out what you need and then we get you to the right person um, to get that. So that's kind of a background on um, with what the organization does. They do also some really interesting work. I should give a, a shout out to my um my colleagues doing the Notario um, Awareness Program, there's a sort of um, well-known in the immigration community, but not as well-known outside of it issue of unscrupulous folks doing what we call the unauthorized practice of law, but which is basically just providing shoddy immigration advice to people um, that 
A, doesn't help them, and B, almost always does actual harm to their immigration cases. So you could have people who might otherwise have a valid immigration claim go to one of these notarios, is, is a word that they'll often use um, to describe themselves, pay a bunch of money, be told that you know their case is moving forward. Um, in the best case scenario, they pay a bunch of money and nothing happens, and they didn't really have an immigration claim to begin with. Uh, right. In the worst case right. scenario, they did, um, but the person does nothing or does a terrible job and then actually ends up putting them in a worse position. So there's a program that sort of tries to identify that um, and then, you know, through a variety of means ranging from lawsuits to bar complaints, um, be the, the sort of the, the, the watchdogs of this kind of activity in the area. So there's a, there's a huge range of activities, but we sort of are centered around serving um, the immigrant community in our area, which is very large, um, both, both historically and due to kind of recent influxes in the area. Well, I mean, I think this is this is why we're doing this show is to kind of get more insight about what's going on because some of the things that you're even talking about right now, even as um, someone that is in the legal field, I wasn't even aware that there were these people that were, you know, would take advantage of people that are already in a situation where they need <laughs> they need support and would would disguise themselves as providing additional advice. So it's almost like they're going through a very difficult legal process and then on top of it they have to protect themselves against people that are pretending to be lawyers which is it just even things like that you wouldn't even think are happening yeah i mean it's it's really it's really kind of sad i I remember starting in the immigration field feeling really intimidated by it um because you're, you're you're playing a game i mean it's not a game but the stakes are incredibly high so for people who um, have immigration issues, the stakes involved with whether or not you can stay legally in the United States and, and live and work and build a life here for an individual are enormous. And, and I'm sure you as a person who is now you know living abroad in another country can kind of imagine what that's like. Imagine if you... Um, if your residence in the UK was tied to um, being able to physically be with your with your husband and your child, um, or if you had family members there, or if you were told you couldn't go back to the United States for whatever reason, right. these are huge life altering issues, and so you feel sort of a baby while you're stepping into it. You know, am I really qualified to be doing it? But the sort of sad truth is one of the things that becomes most immediately apparent is that this is an area of law where there are a lot of people practicing at a relatively low level of competence um, and by by very definition of the client population um, as a vulnerable population who, who may not necessarily be as savvy um, as residents or citizens in terms of how things work, what the expectations are, um, you know, how to sort of find someone who's, who's reputable. Um, it is an area of law that attracts a lot of folks who, even if they are licensed to practice law, are not necessarily practicing it um, at the highest or best level possible. So, now, why is you that know. though, Kaylee? Like, tell me, tell me more about that. Is it because they're just not resources? Is it because it's not uh, maybe the highest-paying field in the legal profession? Like, what do you think is the reason for there being such a low level of content? I think, I think my, I mean, so to be very clear, there are a lot of really great immigration lawyers out there in and out of the nonprofit world. So I, I, I do want to not, I don't want to sound like I'm impugning the entire profession, but I think the, re, I mean, my very cynical take on why it, it, it attracts that is because it's an area of vulnerability, right? So you can sort of get away with it. It's, it's by definition, a client population that is less capable of advocating for and protecting themselves by not being aware of rights, by not being aware of what to do to, to redress issues, by, if, you know, if you're afraid 
um, that any contact with a, an official system is going to put you in deportation proceedings, you're going to be a lot less likely to seek out a remedy against someone who's taking advantage of you through, through official channels. So these people who are practicing this tend to kind of get stuck in it. Uh, and this isn't, I, I sort of feel bad because this isn't, this isn't actually what I spend my days doing. Um, but I do think it's a really cool program um, that's, that's run out of Ayuda. No, well, so, so we'll, let's, let's transition into that, though, because I think the, the topic in itself is, you know, you, you think you read it a lot on, you know, the news outlets and you try to keep informed with whatever journals um, people have access to. But really having someone like yourself explain kind of the intricacies of this component of immigration law is, is very insightful. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about what your role in immigration law is, uh, or maybe some more specifically at IUDA. Mm-hmm. So I was hired last fall, um, and you may have read in the news, last summer there was a huge influx of children, unaccompanied children, showing up on the border um, from Central America. So chiefly Honduras, Guatemala, and then the, the biggest bulk of kids I see is from El Salvador. Um, but those three countries specifically, there was just a huge wave of kids. And then so there was a corresponding wave of funding to Ayuda to, ha- to bring on some new attorneys to start taking on these cases. So I and a couple of other um, women that I work with were brought on to kind of specialize in these cases. Um, so the bulk of my caseload is that I do I do do some you know general immigration law, and I definitely have some kind of thoughts on um, the broader immigration system. But most of my clients are between the ages of 13 and 17, um, and I'm representing them. Most of my clients are in deportation proceedings, which means they were apprehended at the border. Um, and given a notice to appear in immigration court, um, and the government is sort of actively working to deport them. So it's my job to get them some kind of, some form of immigration relief, some form of status to close their deportation proceedings um, and, and to you know allow them to um, live their lives here as uh, you know documented um, folks with all, all possible doors open to them. Now, curious, Kayleen, are these uh, children that are coming in for your caseload? Are they accompanied by families, or are they just here by themselves? So the, the specific grant that I'm on is kids who, who arrived unaccompanied. So sometimes they come with sibling pairs, um, but the, there's not generally, by definition, if I'm serving them, um, they're not. And we do talk a lot about this, you know, one kind of caveat, I guess, and if, you know, if you're, if you're deferring to me as an expert would be that we, you, I get the sense, um, in my work that I really know what this problem looks like. I really know what this crisis looks like because I'm working with these kids day in and day out. But then you kind of realize that by definition, we're actually dealing with a really narrow slice of the population of kids that came. So I think that there were quite a few people who came over, um, particularly with mothers, um, and I know that there are some uh, families being held in immigration detention even still. Um, but the unaccompanied minors, if you show up as an unaccompanied minor, um, you get sort of special and, and you're not from, to be clear, Canada or Mexico. So if you're a Mexican child, too bad, you're out of luck. But if you're not from a, contigu- a contiguous country, um, you, you get sort of a, a special um, bite at representing your case in front of an immigration judge. And then you might get sent to someone like me, um, real get immigration representation, but it is not a right under the law. And, and I would, I would say, you know, as much as I really love my work and, and I find my work really satisfying because I 
Most of my job is someone coming to me with a problem that I have the power to do something about. I really believe these people need help. Um, and it's just an incredibly satisfying way to work to say, yes, that sounds really horrible. Um, no, I don't think you should have to go back either. I'm going to help you stay. Um, you can sort of imagine how, you know, um, just, just as an individual human, how, how satisfying that kind of work is. But the really hard part of the job is showing up at immigration court with your client looking around at a courtroom that is just packed to, to brimming. And, and I'm not exaggerating on a regular basis. The judge has to ask half the people to stand outside, you know, because of fire code violations, these courtrooms are packed with kids. Um, and realizing that there are maybe four or five lawyers there, you know, we, the, just the ones who actually have lawyers, um, are incredibly few and far between. So, so I feel good in my individual client representation because a lot of these kids have immigration remedies. They have, there's something that I can do about their problem. Um, but it really is difficult to, to know, you know, because you see all these faces and you know, and you think, God, I would just love to do a 15 minute consult and see if they have a remedy, you know? Um, but you can't, right? There's just, there's just sort of a limit on the number of um, people that are doing this work, the number of uh, lawyer hours that exist and, and, you know, the way that they're allocated. So that, that's a really sort of difficult and trying part of it is realizing how many of these kids that came. So, so I feel like from my point of view, you know, we're doing great work and providing great legal services, but the thing that I, I kind of don't have a great perspective on other than those days that I show up in court is how many of these kids are just not being served? How many of these kids have a right to stay under the law, um, but, but won't exercise it because they don't know how to articulate it in front of a judge? Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, that's not an issue just within immigration law, right? That, that's, that's one of the, the beauties and downfalls of the legal system is that lawyers are there to speak for those that cannot speak for themselves, but how many can actually afford or, or offer that opportunity? So... I mean, one thing I would say to that, and I, and I absolutely agree with you, the, the reason that I think it's particularly poignant in immigration law is the right to counsel that attaches in criminal cases attaches under the theory that the stakes are very high in these cases. So if you might go to jail for more than a year, we think that's a big enough human risk that you have a right to have an advocate in the proceedings. But the thing that I was sort of saying at the beginning of the podcast is that the stakes in these immigration cases are incredibly high. In these kids' cases that we're talking about, we're not just talking about the right to live and be with their parents, which many of these kids came here to be reunified with, with if not their parent, their aunt or uncle, or there's a family member here who's, who's ready and willing and wants to take them into their home. Um, but for them, it is quite literally a question of life or death. Many, many of the children that I was working with were actively receiving death threats um, by gangs or gang-involved kids um, back in their home countries. Many of them have been subject to violence, um, either attempts on their life or sort of the, the prelude to death threats, so being beaten or stabbed or wounded in some way, and said, you know, next time, if you don't join us, if you don't sell drugs for us, if you don't X, Y, or Z, next time we will kill you. Um, you know, and, and so for them, fleeing to the United States is sort of um, their shot at survival. And it really strikes me that if in our criminal justice system, we've said that if the stakes are sufficiently high, you may get sent to jail for a year, your right to a lawyer attaches, that there should be some kind of similar right um, in terms of immigration proceedings. Um, because a lot of these kids could stay if they just knew the right words to say, um, but they don't and, and they won't. And we have heard of stories. We do know that some kids are being returned and then killed. Um, they're, they're not sort of, the stakes are not imaginary um, for these kids. Yeah, it's, it's real and quantifiable. Um, 
but you know, here's here's something just that I, I guess you know the, you know the oppositions to your to your work, and mm-hmm. it's often a, a dialogue about resources for um, citizens of this country versus people that are not. And I just want to be clear with you that I am first generation American, <laughs> so trust me, I, I you know which side I lean. Um, right. But how do you how do you justify that? Like how it you know I understand the the risk, but when you hear kind of comments like that, what is your what is your thoughts on people that have the opposing position? Well, A, I think there's, I mean, you know, as in so many conversations, there's a huge um, information gap. So I think a really big thing that was happening when this crisis was all really unfolding is that people had this idea that most of the kids who were coming here needed to be placed in some kind of foster home or needed needed the government basically to support them um, in terms of their individual just day-to-day room and board kind of needs. Um, and that's not true for any of the clients that I have, at least. So a lot of these kids arrived at the border and a company. They didn't have an adult coming with them, um, but were then placed in the homes of um, aunts, uncles, relatives. I have one really sweet case um, where it was it was a family friend and it wasn't someone who really knew the child all that well but he had never been able to have children and um is so pleased to be able to have a child in his home now and it was sort of arranged um you know through relationships that were established in in the child's country of origin um so these are communities um the immigrant communities that I'm that I'm working in that are willing to support and take care of these children they're not asking the federal government to support the children um there are of course you know, whenever you have families that have been um, victims of violence and victims of severe trauma, there are t- sometimes some, some breakdowns in terms of family stability. And there are some children that, that fall around at the cracks and the margins who, who do need um, that kind of more serious intervention. But the majority of children that I'm working with and, and all of my clients um, have some place to live and have someone who wants to take responsibility for them. So I, I think that's really been distorted. In terms of the, the, the larger question of immigration, um, from what I see in, in every study that I've read and every sort of actual, you know, quantifiable look at the data, um, immigrants as a, as a group, if you want to consider them as a group, and, and, and there's some, some difficulty in doing that, right, because there's just so many different immigrants from so many different places. Right. But in general, and, and so many different legal statuses, in general, immigrants contribute vastly more to society than they take from it. Um, one sort of thing that I... I particularly take issue with is whenever you'll hear President Obama make a speech on immigration, um, and I I suspect we'll be hearing this a lot more in the coming months as the presidential election heats up, is this idea that undocumented immigrants need to go back and pay their, their back taxes. And I understand why the president says it. I do get it. If I were the president of the United States, I would probably have to say it in a speech too. So I'm not trying to fault him directly, but it really speaks to this notion that we have to calm this anxiety that undocumented folks have been living here for years, you know, eating off the fat of the system and not paying into it. When most of the the, the forms of immigration relief that I petitioned for, for adult clients, um, and then at some point for children clients, I need their, their parents, they all have tax returns. <laughs> like, yeah. you, you can live in this country for decades and have a taxpayer identification number, never have a social security number, never have anything that entitles you to to any kind of social services in terms of food stamps, in terms of Medicaid, in terms of whatever. You can be denied driver's license, all the sort of benefits and privileges 
uh, that the government confers are, or many of them at least, are inaccessible to you, um, but you're paying into it. You're, you're filing your taxes every year. So I, I just, I think it's, and, and, and not to mention, if you want to kind of take it even a step farther and really look at kind of a, a broader economic inequality critique, in terms of the ability to be compensated for the work that you're doing, immigrants working without documentation are at the bottom of the totem pole and are contributing a, a vast you know, driver into into the economic engine of cheap labor, um, for which they're not really compensated at, at a rate that's kind of proportionate with what they're doing because because they can be taken advantage of. Um, so I just I think it's just such a myth, um, the notion that uh, you know immigrants are kind of skimming somewhere or, or getting a better deal. And the thing that you'll really hear that drives me really insane Let's is hear that. It, the, the reason that they don't want to get documented is because they don't want to have to pay taxes. It just, I have heard people say that, and I think you've never met an undocumented immigrant. I have never met anybody who was undocumented who wouldn't have walked through fire to get documents. I mean, it's, it's, it's just such a kind of backward, crazy way of looking at, thing, at things. Um, people are more than willing to pay their fair share. People are more than willing to contribute. What, what they're asking is to have access to some of the kind of basic protections of the law um, while they're doing it and to not be treated as they are treated under our current regime, which is just functional second-class citizens. It is just a, a massive um, class of humans for whom we have we are not granting the basic rights and protections of a, of a civilized society operating under rule of law, um, but we are more than happy to benefit from their labor. Mm. Oh. And rant. <laughs> and, no, <laughs> no I, you know what, Kayleen, this is... This is the important part. Like the rants show the passion and that's and that's what we need to hear. We need to know that there are people working not just to let people into our country and like you say, just feed off of the hardworking Americans. Really we need to understand before we make statements. So having you share that, um, hopefully provides some insight to someone that might not have fully understood mm-hmm. what this kind of work does. Uh Kayleen, I'm gonna pause there. So yeah, Kayleen, this this really is great. I'm I'm curious you know, you've talked a little bit about you kind of go into this this courtroom and there are all of these people there. What have you seen have been the factors that kind of distinguish the cases of people that can stay versus the people that unfortunately um, are deported? Or, you know, and let's be fair, fortunately, in some cases, some people do need to be deported. But, but there are people, like you said, that are working hard and that should be allowed to stay. So what have you found to be the differences? Uh, in my kids' case, well, you know, I was going to say my kids' cases, but I think it's sort of a general rule of immigration law. I mean, this is like the very sad and macabre fact of the field that we work in is like the more horrible your story is, the better your immigration case is. So, for example, the, 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 the great majority of cases that I do are cases of what's called special immigrant juvenile status. Um, so to qualify for special immigrant juvenile status, a child must, a ch- first of all, a person must be a child. So you must be a minor. Um, you must be unmarried. Um, you must have been abused, abandoned, or neglected by one or both of your parents. Um, and you and you must prove that reunification with one or both of your parents is not possible because of that abuse, abandonment, or neglect. So this is a situation, in other words, that couldn't be remedied. Um, and that it is not in your best interests to be returned to your home country. Um, so you have to go do that in family state court. Once you get that order, then you can apply for this visa. It's, you know, it's a whole thing. There's a whole, I won't get into the nitty gritty of, of how you do that. Um, but the point is that, so, so A, let me just back up before I even get to that and say. Selling a little? 
or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, the, the biggest factor is whether or not you have a lawyer. It's whether or not you have someone that you can sit down with and have this conversation to, to figure out what you're, what you're, because these, these cases that I'm doing, these kids had no idea the fact that their parent, um, you know, beat them or sexually abused them or abandoned them and left them to their own defenses or whatever was the reason that they would be able to stay when they came to the United States. They did not know that that remedy existed for them. If they were up in front of an immigration court, what they would have told the judge is, I really don't want to go back to El Salvador. It's not safe for me there, which is not a good enough argument on its face. So really the biggest factor is not whether or not you have a case. The biggest factor is whether or not you have a lawyer to explain what your case is um, and and to kind of ask the basic questions. But once you're in front of me and we're doing a consult um, and and I'm trying to figure out what your case is, it really comes down to like how horrible has your life been? Um, So that's the the biggest kind of case. So what that means is that when I have a kid who comes here and who says, um, I'm from, and this is, this is the sad part. Um, I, I, Wait, the know, rest of it wasn't sad, Kaylee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm. So the child is, you know, I'm 15 years old. I'm from Guatemala. We were really, really poor in Guatemala. We 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 often didn't have enough to eat. Um, we couldn't afford access to basic health care, um, which includes for my mother for my mother access to birth control, which means that there are more children being born all the time. Um, so, you know, my, my father first decided to come to the United States so that he could start, send us back money so that we could have basic education, basic nutrition, and just, you know, the sort of basic shelter, um, because we weren't able to do that without it. Um, then a few years later, my mother decided to join him and left us with an aunt. Now that we're old enough, we wanted to come to the United States because, um, you know, we wanted to live with our parents because we love them and we're very close to our parents. Sorry, like that child is just out of luck. There's no remedy there. Um, so, so it's it really like you can sort of see the faces of the children fall as you're doing this consult. What you're really telling this child is, I'm sorry, the fact that you have two parents in the United States who love you and 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 take good care of you is the reason that you can't stay here and have to go back to this other country where you don't have two parents who love you and want to take care of you. Um, which is really kind of a backward and bizarre argument if you think about it. Um, so we have this system of immigration law that's created this really great remedy in special immigrant juvenile status. That's an, for me, from my perspective, is an absolutely necessary um, and, and, and you know direly needed remedy within the immigration system. But it's incomplete um, because it's sort of 
hints at the idea that what we care about when, when, a, when an immigrant is a minor is the best interest of the child. Um, but then it doesn't sort of account for situations in which the best interests of the child require the child to stay here. Um, but the child has not been abused, abandoned, or elected by one or both parents, and who, in fact, has two parents here um, who, who want to and are capable of and are currently uh, taking very good care of that child. Um, the other major issue in terms of once a child is in front of me, whether or not they have immigration relief, are the sort of limitations on, um, uh, on asylum law in the United States. So, and, and also to be clear, this conversation I'm talking right now about mostly the kids, um, right. when, it, when a child can or cannot stay. Right. So usually, usually speaking very broadly, the two basic kinds of cases that we do for kids are asylum cases or these special immigrant juvenile status cases. Um, so the asylum cases, these are cases where, you know, I think people have this kind of idea of the immigration system providing a remedy if somebody is fleeing the possibility of violence or death or torture in their home country well there's always asylum they could come here and and here is a place where we won't send somebody back to a a place where we know we're sending them back to certain death Um, the reality of the way that asylum law works is that you have to be afraid um, for specific reasons. You can't just be afraid. You have to be afraid because you have been facing persecution or you will face persecution for one of a set of specifically articulated groups. Hmm. Um, Political opinion, nationality, religion, race, or particularized social group. So and, and that, gosh, I, I'm probably starting to get a little legal jargony. No, but basically what that means is that you were treated terribly, persecuted, or believe you will be because you, you belong to one of those things, because you have a certain religion, because you have a certain nationality, because you have a certain political opinion, or most commonly in these cases, because you fall into a, um, a particular social group, um, what we in the legal field call a PSG. Um, we like our acronyms. So what, what you'll see then is, is what, what's happening right now in El Salvador. Um, we'll just use El Salvador as an example. There is widespread um, instability and violence due to the proliferation of um, gang control, physical control of large swaths of territory in El Salvador, meaning that there are places where the police cannot go, do not go, um, there are places where the police are, but they are functionally ineffective either because they're on the payroll of the gangs or because they are so intimidated by the power and violence of the gangs that they are functionally not doing anything. So there are places that are living functionally as if they were under the state control of um, these non-state actors, these, these incredibly um, violent and brutal gangs um, that are largely made up of, of children, right? There's some adults that are running them, but it's, it's, it's just, if you can just sort of imagine, I mean, it's, it's kind of like whatever you maybe have heard about um, child soldiers in other countries. It's just deeply traumatized people living out a culture of violence. It's just, every, everybody is a victim of trauma. Everybody, they're just, just walking PTSD sufferers running around in control of things. Um, so... They recruit children from a pretty young age. Um, I mean, I, I've heard them start recruiting, you know, as young as eight or nine. I think much more commonly they're recruiting around 12 or 13. That's still horrible. Um, yeah, <laughs> 12 or 13 is still definitely pretty childlike. Um, so they're recruiting children to, you know, in the beginning, either be members of their gang and, and actually initiate them into it or perform basic tasks for their gang. Um, 
like be watchdogs, be drug runners, um, drop off some of the threats, be the people who go and, and collect what's called la renta, which is a um, extortion payment. Basically, it's sort of a you know a, a neo mafia situation. Mm-hmm. We won't kill you if you um, you know from everyone to like the, the woman who runs the little tortilla stand to um, the person with the, the, the cell phone store down the street. Everybody is paying la renta um, in order for the gang to not kill them. Um, so they use these kids to go either drop off the notes or to be the ones who come collect the money. There's a lot of there's a lot of jobs. <laughs> so they're, they're job creators, Danielle. Um, <laughs> so there's this a lot is an of these, economics lesson at its best, right? <laughs> so they're, they're they're recruiting these children into these jobs. Um, many of the children know, you know, when you when you talk to your clients and you're like, well, why didn't you want to do it, right? Because I I think you know. 12 years old, not a lot of executive function decision-making capacity. Maybe that would be very tempting to some kids. They, right, these right. gangs have a lot of money. They have a lot of whatever. And they're like, I don't want to do that because I don't want to go to jail or I don't want to get killed. Like, they can see. They can see where this life goes. Um, it's, it's pretty. It's a pretty clear one-way street. Um, there aren't a lot of, you know, 35-year-old and happy gang members. Right, um, right. right. So they, so the kids resist, um, and then the, the threats escalate. Um, and some children are persecuted for more specific reasons. You know, homosexuality is obviously really targeted. There's, there's a couple other kind of things that are really specific. Girls, um, you know, in terms of like sexual persecution is a whole other thing. But I'm just kind of giving you the basic generic story. Um, so, so the kids flee, right? So they're getting these notes that are like, we are going to kill you. So they, they know that they have either a parent or an aunt or someone in the U.S. who can take care of them. Um, so they run um, because, because, because they're going to end up dead. And a lot of the kids, by the time I'm seeing them, um, the thing that pushed them over the edge is that they saw a friend killed um, or, or something or a brother or whatever. So, so they, they know that these threats are good. And that's the thing that kind of pushes them out the door. Um, some of them have been living shut up in their homes for a year or two by the time they actually find the money and resources. They just stop, they just stop leaving the house. Um, so that is not an, is not an asylum case, um, because you can't really articulate a particular social group. Um, different jurisdictions have been having different success with it, but in general that will fail because the, the, the government will say, um, What's your social group? So what you could sort of try to do is say, well, my social group is El Salvadorian males between the ages of X and X um, who are particularly subject to gang recruitment. But it's not particularized enough because it's the problem is that the problem is too big. It's kind of everybody. It's kind of all kids that fall into this age group are at risk. Um, And it doesn't happen to all of them, but it happens to a lot of them. Um, and so you, you can't, even though you're saying it's like, yeah, it's this thing that's going to happen to you and, and yeah, we believe you and yeah, we know you're in danger. You're not in danger for the right reasons. So go back and meet your fate. Um, so, the, so help me understand then killing, cause this is, this is kind of the question that we're trying to get to, right? Because everyone uses the word impact and says, oh, we're making change, but you know, you are actively doing the work by fighting these cases. Mm-hmm. And that's what one of, of a U.S. main focal areas. But I'm right. curious, in, a, in addition to being the lawyer that advocates on behalf of the individual, more generically, what, what, can, what else can be done for them? Like, is it that their road to some type of improved life is only really supported by more lawyers taking on these kind of cases? Well, so it's more lawyers taking on these kind of cases. Yes, I would definitely encourage people to look into pro. If you're a lawyer, pro bono work doing um, immigration work. I think it's it's you know really rewarding and satisfying work in terms of you know having a person in front of you 
whose whose life you can actually make a real difference in. Um, so yes, more lawyers is an answer. Um, but really, you know, the the problems that I've just articulated are problems of the law and they're problems of policy. Hmm. And that's and that's I mean, kind of getting into one thing we talked about before we we you know went on the air, I guess um, that. That, that is the reason that I did policy work out of law school, that for me, when you look at these issues, you can get in the trenches and you can help individual people using the existing law, or you can say, hey, this game is rigged. Like, there is something wrong with these systems. There is something wrong with these policies. There are, there are people who need help that these policies are designed to leave out. Um, and I think that that is no more, nowhere more true than in the field of immigration law. But I think that it is generally true in, in broader issues of human rights and social justice. So I was really attracted to, for the first few years out of law school, um, policy advocacy and legal reform. And I, and I think that is where some of the most major impact work is to be done. But the other kind of flip side of it that, that I think the, the question that individuals have to ask themselves and, and where I've kind of landed on this is I, I found that for me, I am more driven and more excited and I'm a harder worker and I'm a better lawyer um, when I have a person in front of me with a problem that I can do something about. Right. Um, so the sort of abstractness of policy work for me um, tends to dull me over time. And you can you can probably, you know, we've been talking long enough, you can get a sense that, like, I'm not a particularly dull person. <laughs> no, I'm, you're I'm, not dull. Yeah, I mean, I think of myself very much as a, a natural advocate, um, but that kind of drive comes from having frequent and constant contact with people who are actually affected by issues um, with with being able to sort of look at, okay, well, here is a problem and, and here is something that I can do to immediately fix this problem. So the sort of longer war, the sort of sustained battle of policy advocacy, um, it turns out it's just not for me. And so I, I think that's a much harder question that, um, you know, folks really interested in social impact have to ask themselves is not just where do things need to change? Because um, I have a lot of thoughts on that. I think I think there are a lot of, of places that things need to change. And I think I spent a lot of my time in and, and immediately after law school thinking, I just want a job where I'm working on issues I care a lot about. Um, but the second question, which is no less important, is where will I be most effective? Um, because I think I had this idea that I would be most effective anywhere where I could get excited about the issue. And I can get excited about a lot of issues. Um, but it turns out the kind of nitty-gritty of what does my day look like? How do I spend my days? Um, and, and my personality is just really important to like, it's to put those two things into perspective in order for me to be an effective person. Um, so I'm a much more effective and hardworking person when I have eight different kinds of tasks in any given work day. And when I don't know on Thursday, what I'll be doing, um, the Monday after that, than I am when I'm writing a single report, um, day in and day out doing the same kind of analysis, that kind of stuff. Even though it may be true that that second thing, that re- that report, that policy advocacy um, turns into changes that affect the lives of more humans, I'm not the person who should be doing that. Somebody else should be doing that work. And, and we really do need people doing that work. And there are a lot of people who are really great at doing that work. Um, but I'm a, a happier, better, and more effective advocate for having asked myself the question of how do I want to spend my days? Um, with whom do I want to spend them? And, and working on what kinds of tasks? Curious, Kayleen, how long do you think it took you to kind of get to that comfort point? I think a lot of young people, and I mean, even young in spirit, right? It's not an age thing. It's just a matter of you want to help, you want to get involved, you're really energetic. Um, mm-hmm. 
But then you have to be honest, like you said, about your skills, your strengths, your weaknesses, um, just because one thing might look And your tastes, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, like, yeah. what do you like to do? You know, you might be okay at that, but are you, are you loving it? Are you excited about going to work? You know? And taking the chance to say, I'm going to stop doing this and mm-hmm. take the shift in gears to do something different. You, you know, that's the thing about this realm of work. It's really easy to be passionate about something, but it's really hard to take a second and stop and really think about what impact you're really making. I'm using the word again, but that's, but that's essentially what this is about. So, mm-hmm. you know, was there a moment that made you kind of take a second and realize that policy wasn't for you or was it just kind of like the ongoing realization and it just kind of worked out that opportunities led you into the new direction? Mm, that's a really, I mean, I, I think it was definitely kind of something that unfolded over the course of time. Um, but I think it was, I, I think I, I had a job where I realized that I believed a lot in the mission. I could see the impact of the work that we were doing. I could, I could really like measurably notice, okay, like laws are being changed as a result of this stuff. And I was like, just still wasn't that excited about going to work, mm-hmm. you know? And it was just like, I, I think it, maybe it was like I was leaving work one day or something. And I realized like how glad I was to be leaving or something like that, like, and I was like, oh, I don't think I should feel that way about this job. You know, like this isn't, this isn't a soul sucking data entry nine to five. This isn't big law. This isn't like, this is the kind of job that you shouldn't, you shouldn't be so happy to be leaving at the end of the day, you know? Um, and I, I, I feel sometimes ready to leave my job, my current job. Like I feel tired at the end of the day and like happy about going home, but I never feel, I never, never feel, God, I'm glad to be out of there, you know? And, and in fact, like what, what happens much more often in the current job that I'm in is like, I have to kind of get myself to get out the door and I have to stop playing that game of, oh, just one more thing, just one more thing. And I have to really remember and emphasize work-life balance and that kind of stuff. Um, but I'm never like, I'm never, I never dread, you know, getting in the, in the car to go to work. I never, I don't know. I just, I, I like being there. Um, I sometimes dread the commute. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you do live in the DMV area. I don't know many people that don't dread their commute. Um, but with that, what what's one piece of advice you'd give to people out there that are doing really hard, challenging work? Because nothing you said today was easy. The topic's not easy. The, the, the work going behind it is not easy. The yeah. sadness of winning, losing cases, the joy of winning cases, like none of it's easy. So what's what's your advice for other people doing good work in the world? I mean, I think, I think advice speaking directly to what we just talked about, this question of finding your fit, um, is to not equate, um, being not, to, to not, to not equate dissatisfaction with a job that is otherwise in every other way, really great. You're doing great work or whatever, but if you're feeling like you don't, you don't feel like you're quite the employee that you want to be, like your procrastination is starting to come out. You're you're starting to feel a little bored, like those kind of things to not equate it with a moral failure. Um, that was a real struggle that I had because you know, you're doing this valuable work. You know, you know that it's, you know, you think that it must be you, right? That if this is work that's so important and it's life changing and you're, 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 you're doing things that you believe in, but you're just kind of bored and you're kind of starting to slack off a little bit. Um, especially when, especially when the procrastination kicks in, you really start beating yourself up about your own moral failure that you don't care enough or you don't have enough of a sense of urgency or whatever, whatever. And, and to realize that maybe it's just, it's just not the right job for you, right? That like, maybe there's another place where all of your passion and intensity and energy 
um, would kick in in a way that made a lot more sense. It would be exciting both to you and to your boss. Um, so I, I guess I would just say to give yourself permission to look at it as something, you know, if you're finding yourself being squirrely and procrastinating and not the advocate that you think that you could be, and you're feeling that sense of disappointment in yourself, to give yourself permission to not look at it as a moral failure and to just really ask yourself that question of like, is this a right fit for me? Am I doing the right kind of work? Um, not, am I working on the right issue? Am I doing the right kind of work? Um, and then I think, you know, the, the second question that I think you were getting at is sort of self-care when you work on issues that are really close to, um, th- that are really, that are really hard issues. Um, and I, I think it's a question of, again, it's a question of giving yourself permission because if you, if you are attracted to this work, you are probably a very feeling person and you, and you probably have a sense of like a moral imperative to feel things, to not ignore problems, to allow yourself to be moved, to allow yourself to, to, um, to grieve, to allow yourself to feel that sense of injustice. Um, and I think that that's the personality trait that draws people to this work. But the thing that you have to learn to do to stay in this work, which is by definition counterintuitive, if you're the kind of personality that was drawn to this work, you have to learn to give yourself permission to turn it off. You have to learn, not just to give yourself permission, but to kind of command yourself to say, I will be a little bit hard to this issue. And, and, and not in the way that you treat people or talk to people, but to not think about it. To just say, I mean, like if you know that you have, for example, a kid that's in distress and need, to do the things that are within your power to do to help that get that kid into the correct place, but then to not go home and at six o'clock at night as you're cooking dinner, be thinking about where that kid is and wondering if he's okay. You know, you have to separate to sustain yourself. Right. You have to say, I think about that child when I'm at work and then when there's stuff that I can do. And if there's a thing that I could be doing at six o'clock at night, I would do the thing at six o'clock at night. But if you are in a place right now where there's not anything else that you can do, you have to give yourself permission to shut it off because in a normal human life, you know, tragedies and difficulties kind of come and go and we're allowed to sort of feel them and we're encouraged to be present in them emotionally when we're experiencing them because they come and they go. But if you're doing this work, by definition, there will always be a situation of crisis and trauma around you and you cannot live like that. It is it is physically and scientifically and hormonally unsustainable to live in an elevated state of you know crisis and alert mode. Um, so you have to find a way to turn it off. You have to find a way um, to give yourself permission to turn it off without feeling like a horrible or, or a callous or inhuman person. Dear Kayleen, thank you for <laughs> shutting down my podcast today. <laughs> that was awesome. Truly, truly appreciate you um, sharing your candid thoughts about the work you do and, and the, the awesome work of Ayuda. We really, really appreciate you being on the show today. And um, I'll put any additional information that Kayleen has in our show notes. But Yeah, we just want to say thank you. Good job, Kayleen. Really appreciate you. Thank you so much. It was really great to talk. I really appreciate it. If you like what you hear, give us a like on Facebook at Level Strategies or follow us on Twitter at Level Strat. We'd love to get your comments about what other topics we should explore or do you know someone that's really interesting that you'd want us to interview? Feel free to email us at levelstrategies at gmail.com.